Hey, hello, and welcome to Realcom's second in the series titled Driving Business Outcomes with Smarter Buildings. I'm Chuck Nicewanger, president of NiceNets Consulting, your Realcom host for today's webinar, Smarter Building Case Studies. Last week's webinar focused on the why and what, why these building outcomes are important and what smart building technology can provide to meet those goals. If you missed it, I invite you to go to realcom.com and click on past webinars. You can check it out there. Today's discussion centers on case studies, the how. Companies have captured, analyzed, and reported on building data to meet those defined business outcomes and their results. But before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. Thank you to our live attendees. We do encourage you to use the Q&A box at the bottom left of your screen to submit questions and comments. It's always better when panelists are active and we just enjoy your comments and we definitely encourage you to use that. In the handout section, you'll find more detailed bios of our panelists, the, the smaller slide deck from last time, there weren't as many slides, and the full deck from uh, this webinar as well. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos or doing research on sensors, but not those used to censor discussions about smart buildings. Our panel has permission to speak freely. If you're experiencing any technical issues with connectivity, sound, or video quality, the best thing to do is disconnect and click on the webinar link again. You can also email Ian at ithompson, that's I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at realcom.com for help during the event. But don't worry, you won't miss anything since you'll receive a link to the webinar recording later today. And there is my email in case you have questions while you're watching the recording, because you may have something that came up and said, oh, if I could have just asked this question, You'll see that email there, so send it to me and I'll get it to our group or we'll figure out a way to get, get a good answer. This educational webinar is supported by our outstanding sponsors. Oros Group sits at the intersection of building science and data. The, they're building performance technology charts, a cost neutral path to zero energy and healthy indoor air quality. They provide consulting services to improve energy efficiency within multiple asset classes. Let's watch a video and get some more information. Teams working in silos can't deliver high performance results like healthy indoor air quality or zero energy because team members set goals independently, which leads to delays, wasted money, and missed targets. With Oros 360 technology, we define common objectives from the start, predict building performance before construction, using digital simulation and modeling to deliver the highest performance at the lowest possible cost. And you get proof that your building achieved the outcomes you paid for. Contact Oros Group today to take the first step. And Code Labs, whose mission is to build the most intuitive, easy to use real estate software products that enable sustainability, operational efficiencies, and comfort. In fact, Code Labs team have worked with every one of our panelists on their own projects. Let me show you a short video about Code Labs.
And we are certainly grateful for the contributions of our vendor sponsors, tech partners to our industry, to Realcom, and to helping us educate our viewers in sessions like these. If you're ready to drive your company's defined business outcomes across your entire portfolio with smarter building technology, be sure to include these trusted partners as part of your vendor evaluation process. And just a quick comment about Realcom webinars. Our goal is to discuss, debate, explore at the landscape of innovative solutions, business challenges, and even uncertainty in a manner that is relatable and easy to understand and to provide our end user community, you, our Realcom followers with relevant information that can be integrated into your own business objectives. Let me introduce our moderator for you today. It's Donnie Walker. He's partner and leader of Newcomb and Boyd Intelligent Buildings Group. Welcome, Donnie. Hey, thank you, Chuck. There he Thanks is. I can see you and, and I can hear you and that's all good. So, um, hey, Donnie, before we get started, let me run a quick uh, poll. And right. I would encourage our audience to just give us an idea of the position in your company. It may not be perfect, but the one that uh, it closely matches your position. Now give us an idea Donnie, if we need to make any adjustments to some of the way we address this. So lots of uh, opportunity here. What do you think? Great. Thank you. Okay. All right. We'll give them another second or two. All right. Very good. Ian, let's see the results of that. So there you go. You have a Pretty good. A lot of half the audience in, in the technology innovation, accounting, legal, marketing, legal. So probably technology innovation. Definitely some leaderships and the ESG groups, and maybe a third uh, of vendor consulting. So uh, and we're nearly about 60 people on the on the webinar. So that looks pretty good. All right, Donnie. Well, I'm going to turn it over to you. You got a lot to talk about, uh, and I'll see you at the end, and we'll wrap it up then. All right. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. All right, well, looking forward to leading this today and talking about driving business outcomes. <clears throat> and uh, it, it's a great place for this discussion to go because I think it's really where our industry is today. It's the industry has really matured to the point that the technology is known. There's still a lot of things being uh, developed uh, and you know, still a lot of opportunity for innovation, but really where things are starting to be more solidified is around understanding those business drivers. Um, so I've got a few of the, the key business drivers here because these are kind of the high level categories that uh, we will be talking about things or whether it's related to you know, energy improvement and operational efficiencies, which are really those business drivers that we tend to key in on that have a, a direct return on investment that you know, is really tangible. There's a lot of other areas that are uh, equally as important um, that have really strong business drivers, like making sure that your systems are cyber secure, which gets into business continuity. So, of course, um, they're uh, very important business drivers around that. Um, the ability to attract and retain tenants in your building, or if you're you know, building for a corporate headquarters, the ability to attract and retain employees and bring in that talent and really bring people into our buildings was just the, uh, the reason that we have them in the first place. Um, looking at the sustainability goals, the decarbonization and wellness, um, 
but also uh, one of the key factors is the um, digital transformation. Um, and that digital transformation is really related to um, operations. And so, you know, when we have new technology brought into the uh, overall facility operations, a lot of times we're bringing in new um, technology that may be helping the operator do something that they were previously doing manually or, you know, with, with clipboards or maybe even spreadsheets. But now with a lot of the new software tools, um, just because it's there and available doesn't mean that it has transformed the way they work. And that really comes down to operational uh, training and change management. And so we're going to also key in on some of those areas that will um, you know, help us really determine how to drive value from these uh, business drivers and, uh, and not just um, you know, understanding the technology itself. Um, so going from the uh, business drivers kind of at a, at a big picture, then you start to get uh, drilling down into specific use cases. And so um, you'll, you'll really hear us talk about those two a little interchangeably, but big picture business drivers and then specific use cases within those business drivers. And, and what we're really looking to do uh, as an industry matures is to go from you know, our, our previous technology centric approach where a lot of new technology is being developed and really looking for applications and figure out how to leverage and use that technology to this more use case centric of how how does this affect the occupant? How does this improve um, the operational functions? Uh, what is the, the, the cost of this versus the return on investment? And uh, really, you know, how does this make the, the building a better place to you know, occupy, to to do work, to overall inhabit. So a few of the use cases that we'll uh, key in on in some of these case studies, um, one that I'll talk a little bit about is intelligent integrated parking. We're gonna dig into some of the uh, employee experience, uh, you know, really looking at um, kind of a, a deep dive into uh, a mobile experience and how that is, uh, uh, changing the landscape for a lot of our new smart buildings and some of the new experiences that that um, allows to be deployed. So I've got a couple of screenshots here just to be able to dig into that. Um, so on the on the parking side for this specific project, we were looking to solve the business outcome of um, maximizing uh, parking. So in a uh, you know, really heavy downtown environment, um, you know, there's, there's never enough parking um, outside of the facility. Um, and there's more employees than there are parking spaces. And so the idea here was to be able to basically use not just a smart parking showing you where the available spots are, but also um, a reservation app to be able to maximize that usage so that everyone that needs parking knows that they can have it for that day. Um, and there's not you know, people coming in and circling the deck, looking for a spot and finding out it's full. Um, and at the same time, um, this gives you the, uh, you know, the, the ease of use and understanding that you, you know you are coming in that day and that you have a spot just like many people are reserving uh, their desk today. Um, another area that the uh, mobile experience is driving is for uh, frictionless entry, ease of use, and so basically being able to use that mobile app um, as their credential and being able to know that anywhere they have their phone, they can get into spaces that they have access to or through the lobby um, and then you know, that really helps to drive adoption because uh, as, as you're using that for your access card, you're also starting to leverage the, uh, 
the occupant experience app for things that it may be able to uh, to also offer you that you may not have thought about pulling out your phone for uh, because you are, are not in the habit of doing that. So one of those is uh, being able to um, call the elevator. So you know, coming through the uh, turnstiles in the lobby, you uh, you may be able to say, well, uh, I'm a, I know I'm about to go up to my desk, and so I walk into the elevator lobby, and this pops up on my app. Now I can tell it which floor I'm going to, and then that tells me which elevator to go to. So that as you get used to using it, you can kind of do that in stride rather than having to uh, you know go find the kiosk and then wait for it to give you that same information. Um, just like uh, dis I was discussing with the parking reservation, um, you know, scheduling a meeting, um, setting uh, your, your desk location, or inviting colleagues, all of that can be accomplished through this uh, single mobile app that, again, helps to drive that adoption, even though there's other ways to schedule a meeting. By using this same tool for multiple things, it really creates a, a comfort level with the technology, which is really the biggest obstacle to technology deployment is people gaining that comfort level with using it. <clears throat> Another key area that we hear people talk about frustration with a lot of our buildings as they've become more secure is the visitor registration process. And so anything that we can do to help the uh, employees in a building uh, be able to invite visitors uh, more easily, and then that same experience on the visitor side coming into the building to be able to um, you know, ease that uh, you know, process. Um, and so the uh, the mobile experience can be a good way of uh, simplifying that process and making it a standardized across the board. And another way that we like to interact with our buildings is being able to give feedback on areas that you may need assistance. And so two of those big areas are um, IT and AV and those kind of things in the corporate workplace uh, where people may be having issues and that's really causing them to um, to not be efficient or not be able to properly use technology. And then the other is being able to interface with the facilities team. Uh, if there's an area that needs their attention, this gives them the ability of getting that information instantly, along with being uh, geotagged with this location so that you're able to direct people exactly to the right place. I'm um, gonna make our uh, first introduction for our panelists here. Um, we are gonna be bringing on Russ Holton. He is the uh, Director of Building Systems for Bedrock Detroit uh, and has a lot of experience in deploying many of these technologies and look forward to hearing what you've got prepared for us, Russ. Thanks for having me, Donnie. Um, I'm uh, honored to be here. So uh, I'll introduce myself to you guys. I am uh, Russ Holton, um, Director of Building Systems at Bedrock Detroit. I've been with the company going on seven years. Um, Bedrock uh, utilizes smart building technology uh, to drive its uh, business outcomes. Um, and um, I'll start with this uh, first slide. So I'm going to cover our, our mission and vision, smart building strategy, uh, smart building specs and pre-qualifications, existing and new construction, a couple case studies, um, our portfolio-wide command center, and future possibilities and return on investment. Okay. Okay, I'm going to start with a uh, founding father. Um, so Bedrock's vision for Detroit. Um, this is a, uh, a a snippet of Dan Gilbert, his mindset when he uh, uh, started to develop Bedrock Detroit. When he was uh, in the decision to stop leasing buildings downtown Detroit and actually start purchasing them and renovating the city, um, he said 
we'd like to see Detroit be one of the primary technology web center development places in the whole United States where there's a vibrant community of young people and old people alike who are living, working, and playing right in downtown. And there's a lot of jobs, a lot of entrepreneurial activity, and a lot of venture capital and just a lot of excitement in general. That was in 2012, and that has happened. So in my lifetime, I'm a lifetimer, a lifetime Detroit uh, resident. I also, I live in the suburbs, but I'm in Detroit every day. I've been working down here for most of my career. And in my last 12 years of being in the city, I have seen the city go from, you know, a, uh, a blight to a, a rising star in the Midwest. Um, Bedrock has overseen the redevelopment of downtown Detroit by purchasing a lot of the old buildings that were abandoned, um, retooling them, and it's been a, it's been a great process. Next slide. Um, Bedrock has uh, brought tech to Detroit. Um, the tech teams that are are here currently that weren't before is Rocket Mortgage, um, Amrock, LinkedIn, uh, so many of them we can't even, you know, it's too many to list right now. We work, we have so many clients and tenants down here that are, you know, um, helping to help us revitalize the city. Um, in 2011, they started buying buildings and these buildings all had a uh, mismatch of control systems. Some were pneumatic, some were uh, DDC, a lot were outdated systems and Bedrock had made the decision, decision at that point um, that they were going to renovate these buildings with technology. So they decided to go to a fully integrated portfolio, which includes standing up our own fiber optic network, um, which links all of our buildings downtown Detroit and Cleveland together on one, uh, one hub. So we have our buildings tied in. It, it's an amazingly fast system. The streaming of it is, is very, uh, very quick and robust. Um, throughout our portfolio, we stood up our own Bedrock BMS network that um, the BMS system rides on, resides on, our security systems, card access cameras, things like that. It is independent of our tenant um, networks. And we did that primarily because Rocket Mortgage being our largest customer, they're a banking entity. They have uh, very high secure standards that they have to for the government. And uh, it just made sense for Bedrock to do their own network. And for my team, this is fantastic because we have the uh, unlimited footprint to develop our, our BMS network infrastructure the way we needed to. Um, so by having that infrastructure, we were able to stand up our own Niagara uh, infrastructure, which resides on the Google Cloud. Um, we, we have access to all our portfolio, Detroit and Cleveland, through the cloud. Uh, we have one central command center um, in our first national building downtown Detroit. My team resides in there. Our engineering team resides in all of our buildings. So we're able to, um, at the click of a mouse, connect to any one of our sites you know, in real time, work on service requests from clients. Um, excuse me. Work on service requests with clients. Uh, we can um, do scheduling for our lighting systems, HVAC systems, our RGB lighting systems. So we get requests all the time for our lighting systems that we put on our buildings in Detroit. Hey, can you change these light colors? It's like, yes, we can. They give us a color scheme they want and we can make those changes instantaneously. Uh, we have our online command center that allows the bedrock control team and bedrock engineering teams to remotely connect into these buildings to service requests. Excuse me one second. 
They have, um, we built our in-house infrastructure teams to support, manage our assets immediately for our stakeholders and tenants. So Bedrock initially is giving out uh, best-in-class support. Um, when we have a, a service request come in, we are able to roll out our engineering team or our controls team remotely, work on these systems and sites. Um, it, it is a fantastic thing we have going on here. Our technology in-house support teams have also allowed us the ability to schedule um, HVAC systems for uh, demand occupied hours for, for tenants. We can develop control logic and sequences on the fly. Um, it gives, gives us, our smart technology has given us the advantage in Detroit to really sell our, our business case to our customers. Um, next slide, please. There we go. Energy savings at Chrysler House. Uh, we have we rolled out OSS this year with uh, Code Lab. Actually, we rolled it out um, beginning of 2021 with Code Labs. So at this point, we were the Chrysler House is a building that was built uh, mid 1940s, I believe, 1920s. That building has uh, had had very poor energy savings on there. We were working at the time with um, an OSS that was a little outdated. We had to ask Code Labs to develop us an OSS that would work uh, from the platform on our system that would utilize the uh, platform software on the Google Cloud versus running the data through our Niagara framework, which saved us up, saved us on uh, RAM and space on our, our JSES. So we've had that running now an average of one year, and we have about a 25% energy saving through 23 air handlers and 320 VAVs. That's quite a bit. So it, it helps us maintain our sustainability and carbon footprint uh, goals that we have set for the company. Um, opportunities, so we also have FTT that we're rolling out, fault testing, and uh, we have targeted for the end of this year to have all of our sites 100% calibrated through this, through this uh, program. We have 10,000 plus devices that we're gonna be running through this. Currently we ran an entire building through its uh, first national building, and what this has done is it goes through and tests our VAV systems, um, vampire box, things like that, runs them through sequences of operation, uh, lets us know if we have any like dampers leaking by or if the heating isn't coming on or for overcooling, subcooling, things like that. It generates reports, sends them to my team, and then we roll out our engineering teams or our controls team to service the systems. Future possibilities, installing submeters, um, throughout our smart meters and submeters throughout our portfolio. Currently, Bedrock has all of their main panels submetered. So we do quantify our electrical usage and you know analyze it. We are in the process of developing a, a program that's going to install submeters for all tenants, retail, and um, any type of uh, area that's going to absorb a lot of energy consumption. We've, we're doing this to combat the uh, the challenge we have in Detroit, we've committed to a 2020 or 2030 uh, decarbonization and energy efficiency goal of the city of Detroit. So we have a lot of work to do with the meters. We have currently 54 integrated sites. 48 of these sites are buildings that range from being built from 1917 up until like uh, now 2022. So the existing buildings, they are a challenge. Some of them have existing systems that we've uh, change the controls on but we're using older antiquated air handlers that we've made uh we've made work but they need a lot of work to make them more energy efficient so that's my challenge is to make that happen 
our newer ground up builds, obviously we're going with the uh, the latest and greatest technology, latest and greatest equipment. So those ones roll out a little bit easier for me to, to, to hit our goals. Um, we are also taking the portfolio into a Energy Star integration this year. We are going to start having uh, the LEED program be required on all of our sites. Um, we are working on work order generation. We're going to be working on indoor air quality initiatives. We are also going to work on, um, as Donnie had said, uh, we want to do the mobile app, which will allow our tenants, you know, card access into through their mobile app. We have a vision of doing that with card access, um, elevator calling, uh, integrated parking. We have so many objectives that we have to get through. And as all you know who are on this call, um, the challenge of it is how do you prove to, you know, leadership, your building owner that the investments that you're, you're guiding them to make will have a return on investment. So that is always a challenge for, for your company and stakeholders to quantify and validate that these uh, investments will, will regain you money. Um, so we, we're working on all these things, um, access integration, leak sensors and detection, EV charging integration, the tenant app parking systems. We've got quite a bit on our, our tablet, but we're, we're getting there. Okay, I think that's the end of my slide deck there, Donnie. All right, great. Thanks, Russ. That's, uh, that's amazing. Uh, so 54 buildings and counting and 17,000 devices. Uh, that's uh, quite a network you've got that uh, would really rival any uh, you know, college campus. So it's just, it's just a major city that you're uh, connecting. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so what, you know, and going forward, we have, uh, we're going to be about 25 plus million square feet in the next five years. We have new developments, developments being the Grash site, the Monroe Blocks, the Hudson site. We're doing all of our new developments to date have been mostly residential. Um, so we've gotten big into the residential market and residential requires Everybody wants smart technology now, right? So your residential market, um, that is a key component down in Detroit. And that's, that's where Bedrock has been very successful as of late, the residential market. By building these residential units, we have brought more people back to the city of Detroit and they're, they're pretty much selling out before we get them out of the ground. It's amazing. That's a whole new set of use cases. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, one of the questions I had for you is what, what are some of the activities performed in your operations team that you really couldn't do without the technology stack that you put in place? All right. So so the main one is and this is going from my uh, my background in the industry as a uh, control service technician, installation and designer. Right. So one of the things that we used to have to do if you didn't have remote access into a site, you have to drive to the site, get in the building log your computer into their network and work on it that way with what bedrock has done with the infrastructure uh, my team can remote in to the niagara framework from anywhere in the world from you know as far as anywhere you have access we can get into it and we can get in there and do the uh, we can do anything from programming sequences to making a set point change to bringing in devices into the jace that we may have uh, temperature control contractors installing on projects to updating the code graphics. I mean, we are a full service in-house uh, uh, controls and integration team. And without this infrastructure, it couldn't be done the way we do it. We literally have to go to each site. You know how, how, how cumbersome that can be, right? For sure. Yeah, I, I think that that's one of the biggest things that we're seeing is 
people moving from the traditional model of, of a team of people within a building. You add another building, I got another team of people. You know, it's just, yeah. it's, it's not scalable. There, there's not enough skilled people to go around for that model. And so being able to bring all that back and centralize that operation, um, you know, right. can maybe do some really cool things. Obviously you've got yeah. people in the buildings, but uh, yes, the technology centralized. Yeah, so we're, I have a team of four control engineers. We oversee all of our integrated portfolio between Detroit and Cleveland. And, uh, you know, we have, right now, we have a current response time of 15 minutes or less on any control service request that's put in. And we have 100% satisfaction rating from our tenants and our major stakeholders like our engineering team over the past six years. So we've done very well at that. That's amazing. So uh, seeing the energy savings that you had at the Chrysler house, mm -hmm. are you tracking your ROI for energy savings across the portfolio and, you know, being able to really use that as, uh, you know, uh, kind of the, the funds available to continue your, uh, your, your technology deployment? Yeah. So with the, uh, the new optimized start stop that we're using, we are, we are tracking that we are probably 35% uh, implemented in the portfolio right now. So by the, we're hoping by summer we have that completely rolled out in all the properties and then we're going to benchmark because we have collected data on our utilities. So whenever we spin a building up, you know, we have our smart meters in that can tell us what our actual data, data usage was. So we have that back to, uh, uh, I believe most buildings go back to like uh, 2012, 2016, we have that data collected. So once we have all of our buildings in, we're going to pull up the data from when the OSS started um, and you know, the time frame that we're looking at, then we're going to go back to a couple of previous years to see what we've saved with Chrysler House. That was a very interesting. The first month we rolled it out, we realized we saved about $6,000 that month alone. That was wow. in the middle of winter, middle of winter when things weren't, uh, we weren't using a whole lot of electricity, right? Because we're doing economizing more things like that. But over the summer, it, it increased dramatically when we started going to mechanical cooling, the savings where we were getting with that. Well, Russ, I've got some more questions for you, but I'll, I'll save those for our panel discussion and uh, we will uh, switch gears over to Eric and uh, get you back on for okay, the day. Appreciate that, Russ. Thank you. All right. Hi, Eric. Uh, Going to get uh, Eric introduced here. Uh, Eric is the Managing Director of Development and Construction for Stream in Austin and is uh, going to present uh, a lot of their uh, great things they're doing at Riverside. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Donnie. I appreciate it. Um, uh, again, my name is Eric Heron. I'm Director of Construction and Development for Stream in Austin. We, uh, I'm going to present today um, a little information, a case study of a project we've recently developed. Um, we are currently building out tenant spaces in the building, but the building is called River South. It's a 375,000 foot square foot uh, multi-tenant class AA office building just south of the Austin CBD. Um, and uh, we we are in a JV with Quadrio um, to develop this project. We have uh, again recently finished. Um, little overview of the project you can kind of see it there, kind of see the CBD in the distance. But uh, we're in a newly uh, newly developing area of town uh, south of of our our central waterway, which is uh, Ladybird Lake. Um, we're building, we built a building that's kind of top of class in every category and, and, and really wanted to make sure that, that the technology of the building uh, matched, matched the building aesthetics and, and usefulness. Um, it is a 15-story office building, um, five stories down of parking, five stories up of parking, 
the podium of the uh, parking level. It's on a triangular site, so it's kind of an odd-shaped site, but we utilize the top of the of the garage for an outdoor park and uh, and some uh, many tenant amenities, including the fitness center. And then at the top of the building, we have a sky lounge, which is used um, by tenants and their guests only. Uh, it is a, it's a brew to brew concept with coffee in the morning and and uh, and drinks about two thirty or three o'clock in the afternoon, depending on where you work. And uh, really, really, you know, top of class from an amenity standpoint. And uh, I think it's really important that I've tried to kind of pull people into the the mindset of thinking about technology improvements and and smart building as being an amenity. Um, no different than a great fitness center. Um, so our our strategy, um, again, many of these repeat on on Donnie's comments and and Russ's as well. But uh, obviously, reduce operational costs, reduce energy cost consumption and carbon footprint, enable healthy spaces and and occupant wellness. Um, obviously, becoming very critical during COVID and um, and and beyond. Uh, optimize space management and utilization. Um, enhancing experience for tenants, um, staff, and visitors, and then improve the operational efficiency and employee productivity um, for employees uh, of tenants in the building and as well as our own. So I'm gonna focus on this slide a little bit and tell you about the things that we integrated. Um, we integrated 21 systems in the building um, through, um, and, and this, this slide kind of shows from left to right the things that are kind of the basics of what I believe is a smart building um, to things that are more use case oriented and and probably less important. They can kind of come and go depending on what your development is. Um, some things may be more important to you and less important to you. And so this is in at River South. This is what we did. Uh, obviously, the converged operating operating, which is uh, a, a GPON that serves and 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 passes data from all these building systems through to the user interface, which is a, uh, um, this is Code Labs. So Code Labs has a, uh, a platform, an operating system that we utilize for the building, um, a single pane of glass for operation of the building. Um, the, the, I'm gonna switch the clip to the bottom one. The mobile app for tenant services is really the trinkets, but, but it's important for tenants. Um, tenants that have been, uh, what we've seen is, Tenants that have been at home, working from home as an option in the last two years, uh, come to expect that you know they can do things like change their thermostat from their phone, um, and 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 so that mobile app really uh, brings in pulls in a lot of use cases that allow for your mobile app to be used for ordering coffee or or paying your parking bill or calling the elevator, all those things that you that that are at home are are kind of innate and 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 have been in residential for a long time. In an office building, it's new. Um, the one I want to focus on the most is the tenant submetering. Um, in a multi-tenant office building, this is a very, this is a critical part of what I feel uh, it's a necessity um, in order to kind of encourage tenants to extend um, the shell systems that we installed into their premises within their tenant lease space. Um, if you don't have this, there's not much incentive for tenants to um, to uh, extend those and make their space more energy efficient because they'd then be splitting that cost basically without tenant submeter, without giving tenants a separate uh, electrical bill for every every month, which is what we are planning on doing. We're on the way. Um, 
uh, it is, it's hard to encourage them to make a more energy efficient space because they're just splitting that savings with other tenants. And so we are submitting to the point of not only catching electrical loads, which are plug loads and uh, light loads, but we are actually submetering mechanical usage. And that's, that's a very complicated effort. Uh, but, but the idea is if a tenant asks for air, and so let's say it's on a Saturday, uh, all the pieces of equipment that have to turn on that day uh, in order to provide them air, uh, it calculates that and gives them an actual bill for their energy usage uh, that's all encompassing within their space. Um, I'm gonna touch on a few of the ones on the right, operationalized BIM digital twin. Uh, work order integration has been huge and very successful in that we can uh, um, automate work orders, whether they be um, automatic or uh, initiated by a tenant. Uh, integrated parking, um, intelligent is important because basically it's the starting point for many of our use cases. It, it tells when a tenant arrives to the building and might kick off a number of other things like calling the elevators based on where they park and how long it takes them to get out of their car and those kind of things. We have rainwater and condensate collection in the building that we monitor through the smart building system. Um, occupancy data collection is probably the most critical of all the, all the things and that it, it drives a lot of use cases, knowing where people are in your building and how they use the building um, for emergency response, for utilization of space. We use it to schedule cleaning. Why clean a room that hasn't been used all day um, that night? We can save money there. Uh, but I think I think there's a lot of potential use cases in the future from occupancy data um, that could be valuable. We have intelligent EV charging, intelligent security, so uh, controlled access through through your cell phone, those kind of things, um, using your cell phone as your authentication device. Um, digital kiosk guest services, we've talked about that. Um, occupancy comfort, so indoor air quality sensors that are that are testing for many different things that we can use to to monitor outside air and what we need there. Um, smart, smart restroom accessories, leak detection is very important and included in all of our, uh, and required of all our tenants to include whenever they have a, a water source. Uh, I'm gonna keep going, but, um, and this is, this is my last slide, but what, what, are, what are the key aspects to a successful smart building? Uh, the must do's and the don't do's. Uh, number one, hire an MSI early. Um, get them involved early. We did not do this, so we've learned our lesson. Uh, we decided to, to go smart after we started this development, um, which is definitely not the way to go. I, I, would, I would tell you, get somebody on, on board early, somebody like Code Labs, who we used and, and really has been the MVP of the process. Uh, making sure they're working with your engineering team very closely. A lot of the MVP engineers that we use were not familiar with with what it means and um, and what would be required of them to make this the integration successful. Uh, it'll save a tremendous amount of time. Um, incorporate a strong operating system. Um, Code Labs obviously provided. You can you can actually reduce some things within within your project. There's some cost savings in many of the systems when you have a back end of a of a, a single pane of glass um in order to um do the graphics for example on a bms graphic systems can be decreased because you have this overlying uh operating system that can be used for those things um tenant build outs in a multi-tenant building are very important the requirements of tenants and what they have to integrate um, is very important so your msi can also help with that process uh trust don't 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 trust the engineering team again a lot of times they haven't done this before um, Make sure the MSI has, um, you know, 
make sure the MSI is, you know, being um, op open source in all in all cases, and that they can integrate with lot many different um, hardware options. Um, and then, you know, one thing I, I will kind of warn the team about is there's a lot of people out there with tenant applications, um, which are more of an intended engagement applications that are kind of selling it, selling themselves as smart building. And I just want to be careful about that. There's a difference. Um, this operating system overlay and, and the two outcomes of the smart building being the single pane of glass and the operating system versus a tenant engagement app, um, which can give gives a lot of great functions, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a smart building. And so be wary of that. And so that's pretty much it for me. Um, I will uh, thank you guys and uh, get back to you, Donnie. All right. Thanks, Eric. Uh, that was great. Uh, I, I know everyone's going to get a uh, you know the ability to go back and and watch this video, but those lessons learned are uh, you know real <laughs> real live from the field lessons learned on deploying a smart building. So that's uh, definitely some words of wisdom there. Um, so uh, with your project, um, you you really had uh, you know an aspirational set of use cases uh, that I think you know is. One of the reasons that your uh, your project has gained so much attention because uh, you really you know, set out to uh, you know create you know both the the smart building um, like you mentioned you know with the uh, the operational platform as well as that integrated workplace uh, with the uh, mobile experience. So, um, are you tracking your outcomes against those use cases and you know kind of using that as the measuring stick to be able to say okay we're we're doing this maybe not doing this. How, how's that working now that you're getting moved in? Yeah, absolutely. As we've uh, you know started to occupy the building, I think I think what what we've learned is that this is going to be a, a never-ending um, circle of development um, through the project. Um, we're we're just just now starting to validate you know that these things are working, and and we just went through basically the commissioning exercises to get everything online. And so now I think our plan is is to do a biannual review along with code labs and look at look at you know what's working what's not working what are tenants using um uh, like to me that that's a big piece of it right uh, it's great to have all the bells and whistles but if it's not being utilized you know how can we um help help tenants realize that those options are there make use of them um, and then you know i think at some point We'll probably start to drop off the ones that are less used. Uh, uh, the ones that have worked well for us, the automated work orders has been um, really, really strong. Uh, I'll, I'll mention one that hasn't been as strong is is uh, we're using our tenant app um, and for calling elevators. Um, when we started building this building, this is a three-year development um, during just construction. Um, it was pre-COVID, right? Uh, during COVID, we decided, hey, it's really important and touchless is, is super important. Now we're on kind of the back end. Texas has released a lot of the uh, a lot of the requirements and people are becoming less worried about touching touching buttons. And, and maybe it's easier to go ahead and press the button than it is to pull up your phone and open the app and and, and wait for it to respond a couple seconds. It's, it's fast, but it's but it's a little bit easier not to. So, so um, you know, I think there's things that will come and go. And over the life cycle of the building, I think those things will become more and less important. We have the potential to use it, but but some of it may not be used for a while. Yeah, you know, we we integrated that into our project as well, and I think that's just kind of an example of things that you know during during the 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 high points of COVID, you know, well, 
got to get people back in our buildings. No one's going to want to touch those buttons that everybody else touched. And then, you know, now we're at a point to where, yeah, people will touch the button. They'll wash their hands. That's right. <laughs> um, so, um, so we've got some uh, questions uh, from some of the audience. So um, one of the first ones is what kind of sensors are you using for occupancy detection? So um, it's, it's kind of important. We, we, we made a lot of, um, you know, we had, we had some great partners. Quadrail has done, done several smart um, developments uh, private previously to, to our project. Um, so they, they were great in code as well. But um, we looked at a lot of, you know, I think the goal, um, there's a lot of different ways to count people. Um, we chose not to do camera-based technology. Um, we used Xandar uh, sensors, which are radar-based um, occupancy sensing um, that are, you know, in theory, um, you know, anonymous. Uh, and that was really a goal of ours is not to, not to use facial recognition through cameras, try to keep the, the data as anonymous as possible. Some of the technologies are not made that way. Um, Bluetooth beacons that we use for the elevator calling and those kind of things do rely on, on cell phones and they know, who, and obviously if you know uh, someone's there, you know whose cell phone it is. Uh, but but in, in every place we could make it anonymous, we, we definitely made, made efforts to do that. Okay, and then one last question for you, uh, and then we'll pick back up with a group discussion. Um, the um, someone asked, uh, understanding that Code Labs is being used for your uh, operational uh, UUI, um, are they also uh, providing your tenant application, uh, the the tenant app? They did not. Um, they we we've actually we're working on our second project with Code right now, which is in Dallas. Um, um, where we're using the BTS Rise platform. Um, this project was not this project. Um, we used a white-labeled version of Quadrail's app, the QR Plus app, um, which is branded as RiverSouth. So it is, it is a purely RiverSouth application. It's modified slightly from from kind of out of the box QR Plus app, but uh, but um, it's it's served really well. We've made some great modifications to it specific to our project. And, and then I was going to ask a. I was going to answer a question that someone else had asked about the mobile app uh, that that I was showing. Um, that was also uh, it was uh, customized by uh, Funware, um, who you know really built a, a custom app. Uh, but then what uh, what Code did is provided some of the API integration back into the building systems. And so um, kind of like you mentioned, that it's it's two different worlds, but there are places where those worlds intersect. Yeah, and it's you know it's really important reason you know that that, that code has been so valuable for us is that they've been able to um you know um they they're very adaptable to to usually using a different tenant app or or, or um and, and being flexible enough to you know I, I think you can kind of get pigeonholed into one one tenant app as is the basis and i like to focus on the operating system as the basis and i i think code has been flexible enough to adapt to op, to, to other other tenant apps which which i see as kind of secondary to the operating system that's right. All right. Well, thanks, sir. Uh, we'll, we'll pick back up with the group panel and I uh, appreciate you uh, going through all that. It was really good. Great. Thank you. All right. We will bring on uh, Etret Dimash. Uh, Etret is co-founder of uh, Code Labs and uh, uh, we were just talking about you. <laughs> hey, thanks, Donnie. Appreciate it. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and I also just want to thank everybody that's on this panel. It's always a pleasure to work with you guys. Um, I'm Atra Dema. I'm one of the co-founders of uh, Code Labs. 
today I'm going to go through just a very short presentation. I'm not going to spend too much time on the use cases that you guys have already seen from Danny, uh, Eric, and Russ. But really what I want to talk about is how we come to being valuable and how we're looking at the future when it comes to buildings in real estate altogether, regardless of what industry it is. Um, I'm sure this works. Okay, so for us, every every opportunity, every client um, has systems in their buildings. And then these systems in these buildings are usually, most of the time, have some kind of a floor plan, whether it's a VAV on a BMS or a camera, that but still has to show somewhere on what floor where it is um those are all we 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 look we look at the spaces systems floor plans and devices usually exist on an on-prem server somewhere on top of that some of them could have events and alarms some may have some scheduling options and then others could have command and control and dashboards the way we look at dashboards is really like a a system graphic or a you know depending on what you know what you're showing but some kind of a dashboard to be able to visualize something that the uh, user is able to see it where us as code show value in every one of the use cases regardless of what the user story says or what system it is um, our model is to take it further and not just offer the same things but really start to bring these together into one place where now with your events and alarms you can use some AI to better understand all of your devices in one and make better decisions through like a function, um, fault detection diagnosis. Um, through dashboards, we really turn those more into reporting and BI tools where you can mix different systems and get the outcomes that you want to be able to get. Whether it's you know um, occupancy report on a weekly basis where everybody can see how the portfolio is working or how a simple uh, bring, in, bring in a few different um, uh, devices together to be able to show what the outcome is from that or uh, many other use cases that the different clients have. Um, through machine learning, we're able to create better comfort where we, um, whether we're integrated with a work order system or not, it starts to kind of take away some of the hot and cold calls, but at the same time, saving energy and going further to being more uh, decarbonized. Um, through command and control, um, it's not just about changing temperatures or changing lighting, so, uh, you know, being able to change um, uh, turn lights on and off and different things like that or other systems depending on what they have. Our goal here where we bring a lot more value is continuous commissioning, uh, being able to test every one of these systems and devices for their sequence of operations and being able to run this at not just a floor level, building level, or a portfolio level. This really helps with saving on service costs and then being able to, to know where what to prioritize so you can continue to be more energy efficient. And then these tools become more and more useful through that single pane of glass and uh, more time efficient, which we'll talk about that a little bit more. On top of once we have these together, then we can create workflows between different systems to create a better experience, whether that's you know being able to use machine learning and take that further. So if there's optimizing floors when there's not no occupancy there, 
or using um, using some different systems depending on what the outcomes of the building is. You know, some buildings want to be able to tell not just you know how many people they have on their floors, what they have going on, but they want to be able to tell how their equipment is actually uh, you know how it how is it working, how are their service contractors working, um, and what their operations teams uh, what they should be uh, prioritizing more and more. Um, to create a better experience altogether. And then everything for us is really automation. Um, it, automation is key, um, but automation for us is, as we do more on the cloud, um, we feel that we can create better automation for not just one building, but for portfolios and for all clients um, by, by uh, making it faster to deploy. Another, you know, another big one is, everything that you see and everything that we talk about being able to orchestrate all that data in one platform uh, we find that to be very impactful our clients find that to be very impactful because typically you've bought different systems different front ends in the past that you know have cost different you know a lot of money now you have many different softwares that one maybe offers one service another maybe offers it's kind of the same thing and then it starts to become Hard to tell what you want to sell, what you want to buy, what is impactful, uh, and then from our perspective as code, we start to kind of more see what the client's pain points are, start solving for those, and creating more budgets and more ways to present to the executive leadership teams why they should go further and what else they should do um, to create really uh, not just be able to do command and control but to create a an experience where you start to see operational efficiency and energy efficiency at the same time um i don't want to get too stuck on these on these use cases but you know russ already talked about this a big one for us is um working with a bedrock where it's portfolio-wide standards creating a truly single source solution regardless of what hardware is on the background software is leading that and then software is telling and showing what needs to be done. Um, and then also, uh, as, as we continue to keep going into the future, being able to tell exactly what type of hardware does work, what type of hardware is not working, um, and then what modules, features, what data is useful for the end users to actually continue to keep going further. And you know, the, the Detroit's close to the heart for us. So, um, we're, we're really proud of this use case and the success story. Uh, another thing, another building that we're extremely proud of, which got voted as the smartest building in North America by Realcom Ibicon, and Eric touched on this a lot, so I don't wanna, again, I don't wanna keep adding to it, but um, I think some of the things that Eric mentioned are so valuable. Uh, when Eric talks about this, you know, it's you know, I, so many different integrations at once happening um so many different outcomes different use cases different user stories now you know eric can talk about things that maybe will probably be talked about more and more in the, this year or in a few years by others who are just starting to do this on this stuff and uh we were just proud to be picked and working with eric and the team over there but what um as we kind of talk more into the future of not just code but the industry altogether we feel very strongly that um, AI is solving and starting to solve for problems 
um, globally. Um, and uh, for us as an industry, I think we, 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 when we look at that, the way we see this is if you can start to cut out manual work, start to build really workflows that are more automated, and then this really helps save a good amount of hours, which creates more time for the people that are, whether they're in the operation side of the building or at some command center somewhere, to be able to do more with what they have throughout their day, which gives more value. And then another big one for us is um, the future from an industry perspective. Um, there's a, a, a real shortage in the industry. Um, and then the average age is over 50 years old for building operations teams. Um, and regardless what industry that is, um, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a little bit alarming. Um, and a, a big reason for that is building systems are still antiquated and old. Um, and in order for us to continue to keep driving this, I think we as an industry need to start really thinking more as uh, bringing more bright minds and how we do this is in, in younger generations and how we do this is by being able to create more software that, that can help bring this type of data where the experience teaches the young and continues to keep going forward just like every other industry that's out there. And the future for us and for the industry is really, it needs to be more autonomous. Um, and the only way to do that is by creating more, you know, that single pane of glass where you start to, to, to see everything in one place and then see what is impactful, just like the others mentioned. And then cybersecurity is huge. And uh, I know Craig is gonna touch more on decarbonization as well. So I can, I can end there. All right, thanks, Etrin. Um, you know, I, I think you really keyed in on a lot of the, uh, you know, the focus point of this whole session of really uh, looking at those business drivers and making sure that you're delivering the use cases, uh, you know, as, as they are uh, brought to you by clients and then helping them to, uh, to think about things that may not have even uh, requested by looking at those workflows. Um, so how, how do you track the effectiveness of the use cases that are deployed? Yeah, no. Um... Uh, appreciate that that question. The I think uh, again to go back to just some of the other other panelists. For us, effective, effectiveness is really in the data. What is being what is impactful? But how we get there is we still we use software from the beginning. So we have software tools like MyMSI where we track, we bring all documentation in place. We track what the scope is. We track who the vendors are, and then based on that, when the data is live and we're able to do digital commissioning before we turn on these workflows or turn on the, the actual um, uh, uh, use cases that, need, that have been called out by the engineering teams or the consultants, we see that something is actually working. And once we see that it's working, it's much easier to track the effectiveness of that use case. Um, uh, and then for us, how we continue to track that is by working with these end users and understanding what they're really using how they're using it and tracking that part so we can continue to keep evolving. Got it. So with your um, your your FDD, FTT, you're working with the uh, the end user. So in other words, let, let's see what data that's producing, but then go back and look at the data and see, can, can we fine tune that and make it better and really uh, make sure it's solving. So, so I'm going to do a little download of the uh, an acronyms. Uh, someone had asked a question. So uh, the, o the OSS is uh, optimal start stop. Uh, so you're using uh, machine learning to be able to uh, 
basically be able to tell when the equipment can turn off, turn on, uh, and do that at an optimal time rather than a scheduled time. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, the other goal for that, as Russ stated, was really we started with by making sure that you don't need um, people to, to try to figure out when they should be turning the building on or off. Let machine learning do that for you because you know it can do it with the right data sets. And then from yeah. there, you just happen to have more energy savings. That's a huge energy savings because I know in our discussions with building operators, a lot of times they 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 feel like, well, I, I really know when these things need to come on in order to achieve something, and they do. But yes. you know, when are they getting pulled away? When when do they not get a chance to manually do that because they're doing other things? And so, you know, when you can really trust the data and see that it's doing it for you, um, one, it's one thing off your plate, and and two, it's going to save you a lot more money. Um, Absolutely. The uh, and then the other um, FDD fault detection and diagnostics, but then you're specifically mentioning FTT. So what 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 is your FTT versus FDD? Yeah, no. Uh, so FTT is our functional testing tool, right? So like what we do with FTT is um, we this is one of our, our most popular modules that we have. Um, it's it's it creates we build the sequence of operations for these equipment. Um, based on how the building, you know, uh, was was um, designed and engineered, and based on what's there, and and with those sequence of operations, you can easily just with a click of a button turn on continuous commissioning, where you can actually run tests for this equipment at a in a floor in a building, or if someone is calling out for a, an issue in a certain area before you call a service contractor or before you get too many people involved. Within minutes, you can tell what's actually wrong with 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 that piece of equipment, and that's been extremely valuable um, in you know really all over in all over the world where we've turned it on, because again, it starts to save time and it starts to get the end users, building operations teams, and service contractors or channel partners used to um, seeing things before they have to go and start to figure out or call out you know start to spend money right now. Yeah, no, I think that's such a powerful tool because that can be used during commissioning to validate the systems are working correctly, but that tool is always there. So you can do you know, recommissionings and retro commissionings to basically um, be able to run that at any time um, and then get the data back on, you know, is, is it still doing what it did when we turned the building over? All right, well, great. Um, I'm going to um, move, move us along to our uh, introduction of Craig and uh, Etret will be uh, picking back up in the group panel. So thank you. All right, we are uh, next up. We have Craig Stevenson, who is the president of the Oris Group. Hey, Craig. Hi, Donnie. How are you? Welcome. Good. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, thank you to Realcom and the panelists. Uh, this is an exciting subject. Um, when we think about driving business outcomes, um, I always think about the two biggest challenges our generation is facing, and that's climate change and COVID. And when we talk about driving business outcomes, we have to be talking about building performance. And that's really where my business focuses on driving building performance as it relates to building decarbonization, health and wellness, um, and how the building is intended to operate. That's what we do. Um, uh, simulation is our superpower, if you will. We simulate all the time. We're really good at it, and we're really fast. 
uh, we've taken that simulation and we've repurposed it and uh, we've repurposed it to embed it into building technology. And I'm going to show you how that's beneficial. So to start to kick us off, let's talk about the uh, evolution of sustainability and where we've come and where we're going. Um, and again, we talk about driving business outcomes. Today, we're staring at proof of performance. Um, that's what's required in the market today. We started in the 1970s with activism. We've gone through prescriptive criteria. If you do this, you should get that. Um, it's been semi-successful. We've seen performance-based um, outcomes with passive house and living building and well building and reset air. And it's moved into accountability. This is where the market is at today. Um, building owners, legislators, all those decision makers no longer care how you get there. They care that you're there. Um, and that's what we talk about when we talk about building performance uh, and decarbonization of buildings. So what are the driving factors? Why do we care? Why are we hearing so much about building decarbonization today? Um, we're hearing about it because of climate change and we're hearing about it because of these incentivizations that's going on in the market today. Um, started with voluntary 2030 challenge. A lot of building owners are opting in and figuring out that they want to decarbonize, decarbonize their buildings. There's a business model to do it. There's a reason for doing it. Um, it supports health and well-being when you're in buildings. There's legislation that's starting to push us that way. A lot of people have heard of the New York City's Local Law 97. It requires building owners to decarbonize their buildings to the tune of 40% by 2030 and 80% by 2050. Those are big numbers. And we're seeing that sweep across the country uh, right now. The biggest building, third tallest building in Boston, topped out last year, Winthrop Towers. MP Boston built it. It's a passive house. Uh, so we're seeing this at scale. We're seeing this happen literally all over the country and all over the world, in fact. Financial reasons to do this. So most people are familiar with the renewable energy credit or REC market, right? Building owners can go to utilities, buy a REC, and, and buy their way out of decarbonization. It's expensive. It's not always uh, feasible to do that. But there's an emergent right, emergence right now of a building efficiency credit market, a BEC market, similar to a REC, but it's built around building efficiency. So we could start to monetize the carbon from decarbonization of our buildings. That's happening right now, and those are real dollars. Um, so there's other reasons why we want to do this. I mean, obviously for the savings and utility costs, but there's a lot of reasons why decarbonization is so popular today. So when we talk about decarbonization, what are we talking about? We're talking about 10%, 15%? Nope. To get to the climate-specific level of performance required through a lot of this legislation, these voluntary opt-ins, we're talking about a 75% reduction in building use. Um, and if you talk about it from an energy use perspective, energy use intensity or an EUI, you can see it right here. Passive house is being used in large commercial institutional healthcare buildings right now. And that's talking about a 13, 14 EUI, KVTU per square foot, per year uh, as compared to 180 or even what is considered energy star or low energy buildings at a 70-ish. Um, this is a dramatic reduction in energy um, usage for buildings. This is what's required when you hear about these laws that are sweeping across the nation. This is the type of performance we're talking about. You can't get here with incremental changes. You have to get here with holistic plans. You need to make a plan on how to reach these goals. And mainly that plan should be built around, if you're looking to do it efficiently from a cost perspective, that plan should be built around an efficiency first strategy. Reduce your heating and cooling loads first. The cheapest form of energy is the energy we never use. 
So that's the first way we should do it. So we reduce our offset. Once we reduce our offset, then we can get to zero. This is how it's done. These are big numbers. So how does simulation play a part in this? As I stated before, we're not gonna get there incrementally. We're, we're not gonna get there with building science by itself. As great as building science is becoming in the market, building science at the end of the day from our perspective removes waste from the system. It optimizes building performance, which is great. And the software is awesome, but it's not gonna transform your building by 75% in reduction of carbon. To do that, you need to merge building science with data science. You need to build a plan. And we do that through simulation. We want to model the building before we ever swing a hammer and start building that building. We wanna know what the performance is and think about our industry. I mean, our industry is the only industry in the world where we'll invest $150 million into an asset and not have a clue how it's supposed to perform. There is no industry in the free world that does that. Automotive, um, aerospace, manufacturing, uh, process, no one is doing that, everybody simulates and buildings right now are starting to catch up. Historically, we've used simulation transactionally. We bring up an energy model, we size our equipment, you never see the energy model again. We've started to repurpose that. We can recalibrate that model so it matches the performance of the building, and then we can use that model during operations. We call that operationalizing the model. Once we operationalize the model, now we're bringing building science and data science together because I can take that model and I can use it as context against building performance based on the digital information we get from the building. This is what's happening today. This is the pathway to zero energy, zero carbon, and world-class indoor quality. So how can I use it in digital technology? Well, I can use it for monitoring-based commissioning. When you think about it, what are we doing today? We're using historics. You're better than you were last year, or you're better than you were the average, of the average last five years, or you're using comps, comparable buildings. Both of those I'm interested for exactly five seconds and then I get bored very quickly. I wanna know, did I get what I paid for? That's the question building owners are asking us. They want to invest in buildings. They wanna decarbonize their buildings, but they want proof that they've gotten to their goals. The only way we know how to do that is to use simulation. We can export from our simulation hourly data for all forms of energy by primary source, by submetering, by use, by floor, by zone. We can export temperature, humidity, and CO2 by zone. Anywhere you can set up a meter or a, a, a sensor, we can, we can simulate that zone and we can give the right context. So we understand, as you see in the graph, what is actual performance against intended performance. We can do interrogation-based commissioning. What happens when our buildings don't perform in the way in which we want? We can do retro commissioning for hundreds of thousands of dollars with boots on the grounds trying to figure out what happened or we can use our technology. We can go back into this model and we can simulate scenarios, dozens of scenarios easily and quickly and superimpose that back into the digital twin to understand where our performance gaps are. We can use it to test the analytics. Etra just got done talking about fault detection and diagnostics. Great tool for analytics of buildings. We have done simulation in that. FDD will typically say, tell me if you're heating and cooling at the same time. Tell me when you're over 900 ppm for CO2. It's a binary relationship when you start thinking about FDD. When we want our buildings to turn off, you're never gonna hit an FDD spark. You're never gonna see it unless you use simulation. So are our buildings turning half off or are they turning all the way off? There's a massive amount of energy to be saved when we start looking at buildings that way. The only way we can answer that question is with simulation. Um, and then we can also um, use it um, 
within other data layers, uh, digital twins, and other means. So there's a lot, lots of reasons for using uh, simulation within operations. With that, thank you for your time and attention today. All right, thanks, Greg. That was uh, that was really interesting. So um, the first question I have for you, and you you were really uh, getting into that on the last slide, was um, how does a digital twin help drive a decarbonization plan? Well, Donnie, at the end of the day, it's our canvas. When we started doing this work about six or seven years ago, like I said, our, our superpowers in simulation, we can simulate everything and we can calibrate a model. Our question was, where do we do with it? Where do we put it? We started looking at proprietary BASs and the integration there was challenging. We, we started looking at other ways to bring the data together um, that wasn't really within the digital twin environment or the single pane of glass, but doing it within the current technology that exists makes sense. You know, we've already done this with platforms like CodeLabs and CodeLabs, as everyone here has said, and we'll, we'll also say the same, very intuitive, very easy to use. We can easily bring simulation into that environment and we can start the show. So Donnie, what we're able to do is we're able to create an operational model, as I said, right? That model of where I'm at today. And the second model we want to create is the model of the optimum level performance, right? From a building science perspective, taking into consideration all thermal bridges, our massing and orientation, our window to wall ratio, things that we can't change. What is the most performance that building can be pre-renewables? We can answer that question using simulation. And then when we put those two models into a digital twin, now we can see and visualize our plan. All I got to do is go from here to here really easily. And now we can make better decisions. So when we do a renovation, we don't renovate to code base criteria and replace an R18 wall with no air barrier with an R18 wall with no air barrier. And our owners are going to say, well, we want to invest in that, but we don't know what to do with an operational, or, sorry, an optimal, uh, optimal decarbonization model. We now know what that number is. We now know what that R value in the wall is and that thermal and air barrier is. We now know what our fenestration performance should be. So again, we're answering that question and we're able to see those plans in a very, very easy and transparent way. That's what the digital twin market has done for us. And that's why we're seeing an explosion in operational modeling right now. And that and that can help an operations team because a lot of times you'll hear people say, you know, we want you to achieve a 25% energy savings. Well, if you model it, you know where that can come from. Or if you, the answer may be you can't with the building that I have and we need to make some building improvements. Well, that's exactly right. You know, you have people in the C-suite making these decarbonization rules or they're in a state that has the legislation that requires them to do it. And we get a call, phone call from a facility manager. And the first question is, we don't know how to get there. What's our first three steps? We've already replaced all of our light fixtures. We've replaced all of our variable frequency drives and we've got optimization from technology. What do we do next? And then the, the idea there is we've got to stop looking at buildings incrementally. We have to look at buildings holistically. We've got to create a model that tells us we can get to those levels of performance. Then we got to execute and measure. To me, that's as simple as it is, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be any more complex than that, but this idea of poking and hoping and keeping trying things out in the field is a very expensive proposition. And when it doesn't work, people start losing their jobs and we can't afford to do that anymore. We have to execute and we have to execute against our plan. So the idea of using simulation works in both existing buildings and in new buildings. New is easy, right? We can build new all day long. The existing ones are the challenge and the existing ones require the simulation even more than the new ones do. So uh, last question here uh, before we bring on the panel. So uh, when you're working with an organization, who is the primary driver within that organization that can really 
drive the effectiveness of a decarbonization plan. So the people that are listening that may be interested, who, who do they need to basically get to the table on their end to have that conversation? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a great question. So if the goals are being set within the C-suite, the C-suite needs to buy in and the C-suite needs to understand that we can create a plan. That's what they need to understand. And that's what they need to demand. They need to demand, hey, we've set this goal. Show me how we're going to get there. Don't tell me we're going to try in three years and, and do this. They're telling their, their facility managers, we want to know how are we going to get there. Prove it to me. Show it to me before I spend a dollar, before I do anything else. Then it becomes an execution plan for the facility management team where we can get together with them and we can start going through what if scenarios. What is my life cycle on my roof? What's my life cycle on my windows? We could start to lay out a multi-year phase plan, but it's a holistic plan, not an incremental plan, on how do we execute from A to B. Um, and then when you start thinking about the onboarding of your architects and engineers, right, we have to start talking about this differently. I get on project teams, Donnie, and, and you know, we ask the team, we're modeling on every single job we do, right, transactionally for the, for the uh, sizing of the equipment. We ask, where's the model? Well, here's a paper report. We got to start thinking about that differently, right? Every project we're on today, there is a BIM execution plan. Everybody gets a copy of the Revit. Everybody gets a copy of the DWGs. Why don't we see the model, right? Yeah. And that's changing, right? It took 10 years for the architectural market to get there for BIM. And it's taken literally two years for the BEM, building energy modeling market, to get there. So the owners are starting to recognize really quickly that's an asset. They want that asset and they want that asset to live with the building over its life cycle. And that helps. And that's what we do when we enter on a project. Our model isn't our model. Our model is the owner's model and they get it and they can use it over the life of the building so I can embed it in a code lab platform or in my other digital twins because that's the asset I want to use as I make decisions moving forward. Yeah, those digital assets are becoming a part of that physical asset, which really gets us to that world of digital twin. But yeah, I definitely see in the near future that you know when you're doing building purchases, it's going to be you know where where is my where's my as built, where's my BIM model, where's my energy model, and you know, <laughs> how am I going to operate my building without all these things? And so uh, exactly, that's 100% right. That's 100% right. And most building owners recognize that because of the BIM, right? The Revit that they've struggled so hard to get, you know, get their hands on. And now, you know, when I got my hands on the Revit, you see this explosion in uses of Revit, right? We're using it in schedules. We're using it in offsite construction. We're using it in submittals. We're using it in so many different ways we never even contemplated when we started talking about opening up the Revit and making it available. We're seeing the same thing in the BEM market. It's no longer a transactional model. It's becoming an operational model. And then how can I use that in buildings? How can I export my building automation system, dynamic hourly data, and where do I put it? What Then I need to pick the right platform to drop this information into. And that's why you know we've done this already with code. Um, and it's, it's just, it's a great canvas to be working on. So yeah, we're real excited about where the world is going with simulation right now. Well, great. Uh, well, let's bring on our panel. We've got a few more questions for the group, and uh, this has been a great conversation. All right. My uh, first question uh, is to um, both uh, both Eric and Russ. And so, you know, as you're deploying technology and really you know, helping your, your buildings to be a better operating model. Are you getting feedback from the leasing teams that tenants are responding positively to this and that they're seeing, you know, I, I would rather be in a building with 
with the right technology or that my, you know, my employees enjoy this building better? What kind of feedback are you getting from the leasing side, which of course drives to one of those big business outcomes of uh, getting people in the buildings? Yeah, I can start. Um, yeah, I, I think we're seeing great, great feedback from tenants as they start to occupy River South. Um, one, one very interesting one that just came up. We have a high tech company that moved into two floors of River South um, that was previously in a, in a, a nearby building. Um, they're totally work optional, um, so up where they can work from home. They can they can work from the office. Um, they they were getting about 40 people per day coming to the office prior. They moved into River South immediately. Went to jump to 120 people a day were coming to the office. Um, I think that's you know I think part of that. There's, there's a lot of things that can figure into that, but um, I, I have no doubt that the smart building technology and 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 accommodations that you know using the using using the, the mobile device and those kind of things uh, has made a big impact on it. And from a leasing perspective, it's you know we're we're outpacing our competition in the market. Um, um, we we're outside of the CBD at River South, but we're 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 getting CBD uh, top top level rents. Um, and we're we're at a leasing you know we're at a leasing velocity that's faster than most of our competition. Great, Russ. Yeah, we're getting good feedback as well. So we uh, LinkedIn had recently moved into one of our properties, and they've renovated uh, six floors over there. And the technology that that has been implemented over there has been very successful for them. Um, we even had code spin off a uh, a tenant only version of the app for their uh, on-staff teams, which, you know, allows their team to monitor temperatures, set schedules, um, you know, things like that. Look at look at the, the, the overlay of the, the site so they can see how their building's performing. And it's been a big success. We've gotten good feedback on that. And our general um, smart technology that we use here, um, we get a lot of compliments on the uh, condition of our properties in lieu of the, um, you know, like environmental controls, how comfortable our sites are, you know. And sometimes no news is good news, right? So if you're not getting negative feedback, you know you're doing something right. And we we have a lot of instances, we have tents just move in, we don't hear from them. So that, that is also good feedback. Yeah, I think that's something that's really uh, changing in our industry is um, getting tenant level information. You know, in, in the past, everyone was paying a percentage of the energy cost and it, it really, um, in some ways, you know, set us back from doing energy improvements because one tenant would say, well, I don't want to spend a bunch of money doing that. I'm paying a percentage of this whole building. And if they're not doing it, then, you know, I, I'm not going to get that return. So are, are you, you know, really for all of you, are, are you seeing more and more tenants buying into the fact that they want to be a part of a building where they can make those energy improvements and, and, and then really get the benefits? I'll start on that one. So from from my experience with that, it depends on the tenant, right? So if they're a, a high volume uh, tenant that makes, you know, they have a very good revenue stream, they tend to buy into the technology a little bit easier, especially if they have a sheer cost in it. Um, but yes, it, it, it does uh, tend to move a little more in that, that trend. You know, um, tenants with a high revenue stream buy in, tenants with a low revenue stream tend to push back a little bit on some of our standards, but uh, that's, that's to be expected. But once we convince and show the return on investment of what they can get, it seems it goes it goes smoothly. So, um, Russ, one of the questions that we got from the um, uh, from the group was, um, "What are 
you, you mentioned earlier about the trouble tickets uh, that you monitor from the tenants. So what are some of the most common trouble tickets that you're getting? So I would say our number one offender is hot and cold calls, right? So those are just ones you get from a VAV hanging up or, you know, a set point not being quite in range or an airflow not operating properly. That, that's our, our most common one that we'll get is a hot and cold call. Next one would be um, a trouble ticket would be like a lighting area, like lighting isn't sufficient enough, like it's too dim or it's too bright or it's not coming under an occupancy. So just small things like that, but they're readily uh, resolved remotely from our team. And then ideally our, our technology is helping us find a lot of those prior to the tenant calling. And so that's where the, uh, the, the FDD comes in and the, and, and the whole yeah. proactive maintenance model. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I said earlier, we don't, uh, we never get a system down call because we have all the uh, parameters in place that will alert our team prior to tenants or sometimes even our engineering team just know that they go down. So we're on those pretty quick. It's it's the hot and cold calls because we have that uh, plus minus five degree buffer on our alarming that that could happen in that instance. Another uh, question um, from the attendees. Um, how will the new uh, investment tax credit be used to make buildings smarter as well as uh, additional energy savings? Has anyone has anyone seen any uh, direct correlation to that, uh, to what you're currently doing? Nope, not yet. We've seen IRA money for building decarbonization for sure. Um, there's lots of pathways and avenues for building performance. We're seeing incentives. Um, literally throughout the country through housing authorities, if you're doing large resis, um, stuff like that, there's always tax increment of credits. Passive House has been given incentives on a lot of that stuff. Passive House is an envelope first building uh, science strategy for decarbonization of buildings. Um, and to Russ's point, I mean, Russ is coming at it, the tenant question from a um, technology perspective when we come at it from a little bit of a building performance perspective, but we're solving the same problems, Donnie. Right when we decarbonize buildings with an envelope-first approach, we're eliminating those those thermal comfort calls that we're getting from heating and cold because our atmosphere is much more tempered. Um, and when we deal with a, a decarbonization with an envelope-first strategy, because the walls are so efficient, you're not going to see that spike like this you would see in a normal code building. So it's sort of the same problems. And there's a great um, I mentioned Winthrop Towers in Boston as being the third tallest building in Boston. It's a passive house. Um, there is a great case study on that if you Google it and look at it. And he talks, Brad Mahoney is uh, talking about um, retention of tenants, attraction of tenants, asset valuation, um, and a lot of these health and wellness things that have been solved with the envelope first approach. So again, it's this, we're solving the same problems in the same buildings with, with this decarbonization strategy, um, merging building science and data science. Okay. Great. So with our uh, topic on uh, business outcomes, uh, are there any, uh, any, any business outcomes that we haven't touched on today that we, uh, that we need to uh, address as a group or did we uh, pretty much uh, run, <laughs> run all of them uh, to ground in our conversations? I think there's some very interesting ones about, you know, surrounding disposition and, and what is this data set value um, when, you, when you sell an asset? Um, we have the perfect history of our building and every piece of equipment and how it was maintained throughout the process, how from the day it came online until we sell it. And uh, I think that's a big unknown. I mean, I don't think there've been many, many buildings um, 
and a smart building sold. And so I, to me, the value of that is is undetermined and, and very interesting um, from uh, from the real estate owner side. Um, you know, the increased life cycles of equipment and what, what it's going to mean by by maintaining these on a predictive maintenance schedule and 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 by using the data to, to maintain a building, um, you know, how much longer is it going to last um, and what's the value there? So I, I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think uh, it's exciting to think about all the different use cases that are going to come along in, in the future, but but mostly, um, you know, there, there's there's a ton of things that I think are possible future future values. For, for us as building owners. Great, thanks, Aaron. Yeah. All right, well, um, I appreciate that. Etrick, uh, uh, do you have one more, Adam? Yeah, I was just gonna say uh, one more thing is just uh, to touch on to everything that Eric said too, is how to, how to you know, move them, uh, moving the data is one thing too, but it's also how to, to service the building, right? The future of how the buildings will be serviced is, 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 a, is a really big one, especially with the uh, information that you have in place. Great, great, Donnie. Good conversation, Axe. Incredible. Thank to our live audience. You guys <laughs> were very active, sent a lot of questions. Some of them uh, didn't make it in the, in the conversation, but I'll definitely pass those on so that the group can respond to you directly. If you're watching this as a recording, too, I do remind you that you can use my email address that was given at the beginning. Uh, send me your questions. If they don't get answered via email, uh, we can use those questions to provide uh, other opportunities to answer, maybe even when you attend RealCom. I'll talk about that in just a second. So thanks again to Donnie for moderating our panelists, all your valuable uh, contributions to this subject. Just a lot of information to process. I'm gonna have to go back and look at it again and take more notes. I was just, just jotting everything down. Uh, thank you again to our live audience for being so active. Uh, whether you've joined us live or watching this recording, uh, be sure to register for upcoming webinars. The second in this uh, webinar uh, on February the 9th, we've got the Enterprise Data Integrations Industry Direction. That's focused on investment management. So if you're an investment management advisor or investment portfolio uh, group, or you do fund management or you REIT, great discussions here, you'll find that. Followed by Effective Data Strategies, Implementations and Integrations. This one, I can't uh, emphasize enough because there's so much uh, about the data and about how it gets integrated, user uh, visualizations, all of that. Uh, and just remember too, it's never too soon to make your plans for RealCom IBCon 2023. You'll be able to connect to this community in person, develop direct relationships with these people right here. They're, all, they're probably all gonna be there. Uh, come in and you'll be able to talk to them directly and ask your questions in person. You'll be able to expand your networks. It's just a great way to do uh, your network development. So we'll be in Las Vegas, Caesars Palace, mid-June. Check it out. That's it for us. Thank you, guys. Be safe, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Donnie. Thanks, guys.